um, one of them still lives right up the street. And he's frequently on the radio. They call it Fireball Friday. And he talks about all kinds of stuff. But, of course, about the studio down in Texas and Buddy Holly and, you know, all the different albums and the genesis of, you know, different recordings and stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's cool. He lives right up the street. I feel like it's probably a small enough town that, that you two must cross paths from time to time. Well, I haven't seen him yet, but we are – the guy across the street knows him quite well. And the guy across the street seems to know everybody. When I say I live across the street from Albert and Sandra, everybody's like, oh, I know where you live. Um, <clears throat> everybody seems to know them. Anyway, so we're going to have, we're going to do a little front yard concert. We have a little three piece cover band called the Raton Three. And I'm quite excited about it, actually, because we're, we're, we've learned about 40 songs. I've really had to grow as a vocalist to sing all these songs that I've always loved. And we're doing everything basically from Johnny Rivers to Nirvana. <laughs> so as long as it's in the 20th century, we're doing it. Nothing past the year 2000. No 19th century hits. No, no. <laughs> no, no ragtime. This is the breadth a little bit. Blood and Roses by Smithereens. Really great song. And then there's an old Love and Spoonful song that Mama Cass sings. Didn't want to have to do it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song. And we've learned that too. So that's the breadth is pretty far. I like to hear that you're still not only um, expanding your repertoire, but also your your singing abilities. What like in 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 that world in these songs that you you were choosing what would you say was the most difficult for you ooh um sentimental lady wasn't easy bob welsh i want to say yes and then um learning black by um pearl jam partly because you it has to be emotional but his moves are very precise on his melody and they change a little, you know, because the second verse grows, you know, and, well, it climaxes, you know, and stuff. So, plus, you know, it's Eddie Vedder. So, I got to do it right. You know, I got to do it. But I also have to do it so it sounds like me. But, yes, yeah, so I would say it was, those were challenging. We're also doing a Hot Burrito number 1, Graham Parsons. And he's so vulnerable and, you know, he sings pretty softly, but it's, it's a nice little melody. It's a little tricky. You may be sweet and nice, but that won't keep you warm at night. Yeah. Anyway, and these are all just songs we've loved. We learned a Jayhawk song. I didn't even know it, but it was a really favorite of my husband's. So I thought, well, I'll learn it if I like it. And I heard it and I was like, oh yeah, I like it. I'll learn it. Eddie Vedder is an interesting one because the when you're dealing with a uh, a vocalist that's as, I guess, singular as he is, you know, that, 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 sing, that sings in like such a, I mean, obviously singular at the time. Now there's, a, you know, millions of bands that like imitate Eddie Vedder, but it's, this is always the trickiest part of doing a cover, right? Is how um, how true you stay to the ri- the original, and it's probably difficult to sing a Pearl Jam song 
and not doing any better impression. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But you, each one of us has to come into our own moans. Oh, and all I wanted was. You got to do your own moan. There's no way you can moan like any better. <laughs> you got to earn that moan. And you earn that moan through hard living. Yeah. Things to when you retire. <laughs> so you've pretty consistently played music. I have. I've, I've usually kept some kind of band, some kind of way. Um, when I was teaching high school art in the desert, which I did up until last year in March when they said the kids didn't have to wear masks anymore. And I'm like, you know what? I'm 67 years old, overweight, never got COVID yet. And I've been teaching 200 kids a day. But now you want them to come without their masks? I just was like, I can't do it. It just seemed like a... And of course, one of my teachers that I worked with has now had COVID three times. And the most recent time, she was the most sick. So I'm really glad I'm out of there, you know. I still have to live, you know, and I want to live it, you know. It's incredibly. I, I also have had COVID three times. I, I I have this cold that I'm dealing with right now. I, I checked and it's not COVID, but I, I think that that's something that most people don't realize who haven't had COVID multiple times is it doesn't get any easier. Yeah, that's what I understand. That that breaks my heart because people I've known who just had it once got pretty sick. I There were a couple of parents, you know, students of mine or grandparents of students of mine that passed away from COVID while we were in school and teaching is very difficult. Getting back to my close to 2019 travel levels for work. Um, so, you know, I've been on, I've been on about eight planes this year so far. And I, you know, suddenly, suddenly in the past six months, I feel like the weirdo for being, you know, one of five people wearing a mask on a plane. I would be right there. I might even, if I had to fly, I'd probably buy one of those little respirator things, you know, the plastic, just because you're right there. You're stuck with them. You're all in their air. And, People are, you know, and everyone who's there is traveling from all these different places and with the variants and all that kind of thing. I still want to be a part of that. Were you doing live performing before the pandemic? I, usually at least once a year, I would go to the Bay Area because I had a, a regular band in the Bay Area. Um, just a little over a year ago, the guitarist from that band, though, passed away. So now that option kind of isn't really there and I'm nowhere near the Bay Area anymore. At least when I was in California, in Southern California, teaching in the desert, you know, it was just like I'd go up for a few days with my sister and I'd stay with the bass player, you know, and he had an extra room in his house and all that. Now that's kind of not an option. And so I still love performing and I really love singing. Luckily, my husband's really good friend, who's the carpenter on our remodel for our 1960s house, he plays great guitar. And my husband plays drums. So we, we have a three-piece. <laughs> I'll send you some stuff if you want me to. I mean, aside from the cover bands, are you, are you, writing, are you writing music still? Well, actually, it's way... It's going to take a really long time because I started writing my memoirs. And I'm only like, you know, 14 pages into it. So I've got a long ways to go. 
But there's a lot that happened in my life. I was in an interesting point in history. Um, my family's history is interesting. Um, and I definitely grew up very engaged with um, social change and social cultural events that were going on during my lifetime. I was of my time. And so I'm just trying to chronicle that, the mid-century, you know, uh, time. I, For instance, I went and helped occupy Alcatraz in the middle of San Francisco Bay with the Native American um, activists when I was 16. <laughs> so... You know, I'm yeah. I'm in New York now, but I'm from Fremont originally, so I'm very familiar. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Very familiar with the area. I also saw the Sex Pistols, so there's a lot to tell. You know, the club that you performed at, which was, you know, it was gone well before I was of age to be able to go to shows. Um, it, that was one of the final Sex Pistol shows there, right? I mean, they broke up in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. With the Avengers opening. I had Penelope on the show a while back. Oh, she's awesome. Her and I did an art show together last summer with uh, Judy Gittleson from the Inflatable Boy Clams. We're all alumni of the San Francisco Art Institute. So Judy kind of got us together because she opened a gallery and said, why don't we do a punk painter show? She knew I liked to paint. Your, your family is indigenous, correct? Half is and half is Norwegian. So I'm definitely mixed. My mom was not Indian at all. And my dad was very much so. In fact, he ran a title four Indian education program in Spokane. So yeah. Half of my family is Jewish. And I remember, you know, as a teenager, wanting to get in touch with that side of things. Um, sure. that, that was the time when that was most intense, probably right around my bar mitzvah. And it sounds like you might've been in a similar boat as far as the occupation of Alcatraz. Absolutely. I wanted to be there. You know, if history was going to happen with the Indian rights, I wanted to be front and center. And, and also it wasn't something I grew up around because my mom and dad divorced when I was only two and a half. So we grew up in California and all my family, Norwegian and native are all from Washington state. Have you gone back and, and visited the, the sites that your family was from? Yes. As a matter of fact, sure. Especially, um, you know, as a young adult, um, I, I was able to do that and get in touch with my cousins. And now, you know, we keep in touch on, I'm on Instagram. So some of my cousins I teach, I keep in touch with there. And I participate in some tribal things. I did an artwork for the back of the, Cowlitz language vocabulary cards. You know, there's always a design on the back of a card. So I did that artwork, you know, just whatever I can do. I've had cousins who are on the um, council, tribal council. So I try to participate a little bit. It must have been exciting for them to have somebody from from the, the tribe who is just, who was who so prominent. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it for my cousins it was a huge deal. But for the tribe itself, um, I'm not really sure because 
they have a casino and stuff. And for instance, I think it was two years ago now, might have been three. I was, <coughs> excuse me, I was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Native American Music Association. And my tribe hasn't like really acknowledged me at all. <laughs> so, I mean, I keep wondering when they'll like ask me to do something or, you know, record a promo or do anything like that. And I haven't, but, you know, I don't live up there and that's probably a big barrier. So I really didn't grow up, you know, in that area. So, but the aisle name is pretty big around the area. You know, I had um, cousins that were principals like at Leshai, which is a famous tribal leader in Washington um, at his elementary school, you know, named after him, stuff like that. The last name is, it's a Native American name? Yeah. My great-grandfather's full name was I.L. Wahawa. And our family shortened it to be like our family name. You know, at 16 years old, going to this, not just going to this, this, this occupation or, or this protest, but doing it, you know, on a, on a prison island or a former prison island, that must have been, that must have been pretty overwhelming at that point. I'm sort of shocked at how fearless I was. I just was hungry for experience. And I thought, you know, I guess my mom kind of raised me pretty tough too. She was a veterinarian. So she was in, in a class of 102, there were two women who graduated as veterinarians in 1949 when she did. So she was a trailblazer. She was very intellectually curious. I read all the books she did, you know, um, Siddhartha and Steppenwolf and Animal Farm, all that kind of stuff, Alan Watts. So whatever she was reading, I would read. And, and she just was very uh, individual, pretty liberal, you know, person. And we were raised. I remember when I wanted to go to Alcatraz, she said, well, I raised you. I guess I have to trust you. And so she let me go. I took the Greyhound bus from Fresno. You were in the Bay at that point. And, you know, for those people who don't know, California geography. That's a that's a pretty far ride for a 16-year-old. Yeah, and to get onto the island, I was in like a dinghy, a blow-up inflatable dinghy at night because you had to kind of sneak onto the island cuz you know, Coast Guard really wasn't encouraging people. And it was kind of rigorous. It was cold. I slept in the old guards housing and it was just these cement you know, very institutional, um, like probably eight-story buildings or whatever. And um, the foghorn would go off like every 90 seconds or something when you're trying to sleep. And the foghorn's like, you know, 100 yards away from where you're sleeping, but it's designed to be loud. So it was. I was just there about four or five days, just over Christmas vacation. What did I do on my Christmas vacation? <laughs> I went to Alcatraz. It's funny to be complaining about, you know, how uncomfortable it was because it's like it's Alcatraz. That's kind of the whole point. Yeah, that's true. How long were you there for? Just about four or five days. I don't remember exactly. 
I had seen or I had heard or read you discuss it before, and it sounded like it sounded like it was it was kind of a turning point for you that it you know you sort of realized that maybe this isn't my scene. Interesting. Um, I don't know if I've ever said exactly those words. I did not feel like I totally belonged because I had such a suburban upbringing. But I would never say it wasn't really my scene, the political activism I was into. I might have felt a little isolated because, you know, my tribal affiliation was pretty far away. And, you know, the Bay Area tribes came from either the colleges, because some of the activists there were from the colleges. Or, um, for instance, there were a lot of Native people that were Sioux that were the men were recruited to work on the Golden Gate Bridge because they're so sure-footed. They were the same kind of workers that were building high-rises in New York City, as well as the Iroquois. So there was a whole movement to move um, Native people off the reservations to the Bay Area. So the Bay Area had a really big Native American population and scene and intertribal friendship house. There was, you know, a whole social aspect, Native American health center, all this kind of things. Um, of course, I was down in Fresno, so, you know, a little bit uh, far from that. But when I could, I got involved. So you remained involved in, in the protest scene. Well, especially anti-war, you know, Vietnam War, went to a, many, many, many marches and across San Francisco where there, I haven't looked up any of the statistics, but I would have to guess there were probably 20,000 people in some of those marches. It was, you know, uh, four lane wide street, like I think it was Fell or Oak Street that we walked out from the Civic Center to Golden Gate Park. And as far as the eye could see were people marching so you didn't see the beginning or the end at any point when you were in the middle so a lot of people and i wonder how much punk eventually played sort of a similar role for you because like so definitely when we're you know like like i said before i'm from fremont so i'm, I'm from a very suburban area and i understand the the drive to get to a city you know to, to sort of you know it, it, to in, embed yourself in a culture, but also realize that there that there are like people from outside of my suburban enclave who who like who I have things in common with, and and really find your your group of people. And it sounds like for you, to a certain extent, punk would eventually play a similar or same role. Absolutely, and so I was into poetry and art and things like that, and I was working at. Indian Action Council Preschool. So this was when I was in my early 20s. And the teacher that worked there was into rock from New York City. And um, he started finding out about the Ramones and Patti Smith, and he would buy their records. And so that's how I grew as a fan. And Patti Smith was a revelation to me because she was not trying to be, you know, the beautiful femme musician or the you know hot rocker chick any of that didn't have anything to do it was outside of gender norms what she was doing you know she was just patty 
And her brain was just open to all kinds of ideas that wouldn't embrace those kind of conventions. And so I thought Patti Smith was kind of my role model as far as artistic or singing. And again, it's kind of like, do you mean it? Then you can sing it. It's not whether can you sing. Yeah, but at a certain point, obviously, you realize that you you could, in fact, sing. Yeah, yeah, I kind of figured it all out. Especially, you know, the era I grew up with where you had Stevie Wonder and the Ronettes and, you know, um, just all kinds of great bands on the AM radio all the time, you know. Um, You grew up singing all these songs, so I, I ended up, Hey, I do have a sense of melody and all that. I mean, I know the the Ronins weren't Motown, but there is something about Motown or that soul music specifically that really just sort of kind of burrows its way into your subconscious, and it and it and it really sort of informs the way that you that you interact with music for the rest of your life. Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, it sounds like you were very much emboldened by Patti Smith from from the standpoint, uh, and, and and this is this is a, it's a similar sense that I get from a lot of people who specifically entered music through punk and certainly in, in those early days was the sort of the, the removal of some of the gatekeeping that existed around music, you know, that obviously before that too. And, you know, certainly that it's still probably even more, well, it's still the case these days that there are, there are certain barriers of entry, right. You know, in terms of certainly bar- barriers of entry in terms of like, Oh, if I'm going to make, a living doing music, well, then I need to get on the radio and that I need to get on a major label. But, the, but to actually make that transition to realize there's a big difference between enjoying music and singing music to yourself and actually being emboldened to stand up and do it on a stage in front of people. Yeah. But I had seen Penelope from the Avengers and I thought she has something to say. Well, I have something to say so I can write my own songs. You know, and also I really loved X-Respect. So polystyrene, oh, bondage up yours, you know, absolutely. I was enthusiastic about that attitude. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the X-Respects because I think the other, one of the other connections there is you both, you both had a prominent sax player, which is not something that was super common in the music at the time. For sure. Benjamin Boss was amazing to our sound and really elevated us. You know, once, once we got Benjamin, things just like came into focus and we really had a voice that was really unique. And uh, part of that was Benjamin's um, attitude and influence from jazz, uh, being able to be spontaneous and really feel things. And, um, he would really play off live how I was feeling in any given night. His playing would change depending on how I was delivering the lyric that night. You know, because some lyrics, even though the melody stays the same, one night you're saying them a little bit more mournfully. Another night you're saying them more triumphantly. Another one night you're saying like whistling in the dark, you know. So he could feel those things and articulate them in his little solo sections and his, uh, you know, melodic responses 
to the vocal when we were on stage. It was really um, a powerful uh, – he was a powerful partner with me as the voice of Romeo Void. That's an interesting point that I, I, I haven't actually heard discussed much, but the – you know, obviously, if you're in a band, for the most part, certainly if you're in a kind of a more traditional band and you're, you know, you've got a couple of albums or, you know, you're touring on an album, you, you are effectively playing the same songs night after night. And it can get a little repetitious, but, 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 but I, but I like that perspective. It's really interesting the, the way in which it sounds like you were really bringing your life, you know, bringing, bringing your mood, bringing, bringing wherever you were on a given day into the performance. I feel like that's what good singers do. Because you can't really hide in a vocal too much and be effective. If you're being honest, you're being open, and people are feeling what you're singing. And... Well, at least the powerful singers that I enjoy listening to all have that quality of being really tuned in to themselves and able to express that. And then that's what touches people. Maybe it came fairly naturally to you, but was there a certain point when you really felt the confidence that you you could really kind of give your all? I mean, there's something making art in front of people is, is vulnerable just on the face of it. You know, playing music is vulnerable on the face of it. But to me, there's something next level about singing that is just one of the most vulnerable things that you can do in front of a large group of people. And it seems like something that it takes an incredible amount of confidence to be able to do. And, you know, perhaps that's something that you have to work up to over time. I think because of being a brown girl at mostly very white schools, of being a fat girl among more slender population, I got the confidence to just be myself way younger because it was either that or get beat down by it. And there was nothing in my life or my upbringing that said you should validate others' opinion of who you are. You know, my mom valued her opinion of who she was. And so she went out to do what she wanted to do. And that was what was modeled for me. You need to do that no matter what people might say about you or think about you. And also that whole concept of like, don't give people the power to shut you down if you have something to say. And um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it helped me even before doing music or performing to have that attitude. It might've got me in trouble with the administrators at my schools. I did end up quitting high school because I just don't fit in. You know, this is not going to be for me. This experience cannot work for another couple of years. So, um, but then I started going to college. I rode my bike over to the college, uh, Fresno state um, and I didn't even apply to the school. I just went to the classes. I got a schedule and I showed up at the class. First day of class, I was like, I want to take your class. Why well, are you registered? No, I'm not registered and I'm not going to register. I just want to be here and learn. So it was always to kind of be of use to myself. Really interesting to hear you say that because I do think that there is a, um, 
there's a sense that a lot, maybe even most people at this point approach college, which is they want, they need something quantifiable to get out of it. And for most people it's, it's a degree or, or, you know, it's some sort of insight or, or, or a very specific skill set um, for a very specific job that you plan on having afterwards. What being at Fresno state and, 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 you know, not, not being enrolled and not, you know, worrying about getting those credits. What was it that you were getting out of the experience? Poetry. There were lots of Fresno poets. Philip Levine was one of the national poets um, at the time, and he was from Fresno, but there were a lot of other poets around there, and there was a lot of, um, you know, the Bay Area influence of, of all the beat poets and Allen Ginsberg. I saw him. Um, performing in my youth and Denise Levertov and the writers that the professors at Fresno State were turning me on to were, you know, very contemporary free verse. And the, I also took a women in literature class. I got exposed to a lot of, you know, female authors and things like that. So I, I was always about the culture. <laughs> There's something really interesting about San Francisco and, and, and the beats, which is, I don't know, maybe this, this might not be the case anymore. Obviously San Francisco has changed a lot in the past, you know, decade, decade and a half. And I would say probably as somebody from the area, probably not for the better, but when I was growing up, you know, in the nineties, I, I, you know, whether it's Vesuvia or walking into City Lights, you know, I, I walked in the City Lights a few times, and like Lawrence Ferlinghetti was just there, talking yeah. to people, and it felt like the city still had a tangible connection to that scene. It still felt, you know, what well, certainly not as vibrant, but it still kind of felt alive in the intervening Absolutely. decades. Did you have, I guess, expectations that poetry might be something that you might be able to? Do professionally? I don't think at the time I thought, and I still don't. <laughs> You've got sense, you know. It's, it's yeah. a very hard thing to do professionally. I mean, music. Don't get me wrong, music is also extremely hard, but poetry is sort yeah. of next level. Yeah, I think I was always just willing to have a job. You know, um, when I was going to school, you know, unenrolled after I quit high school, on the weekends I worked up in Yosemite as a maid. There was a bus you could get on to go work for the weekend at City College. You just go show up and go work. And so I was always willing to have a job. I worked in grocery stores. I was a maid. I worked in a head shop. Um, you know, I ended up working uh, in a health facility as a medical assistant. You know, so I, I was always just willing to have a job. I think perhaps my mom would have liked it if I wanted to be a professional like she was, but it just wasn't my thing. And I, even though I was completely exposed to medicine, it was never a goal of mine to join medicine as, you know, to do it for a job. So it sounds like the most important thing, or at least the immediate goal was that you were able to, to do what you can to sustain yourself in order to make the art and just enjoy, I guess, the process of making things. Absolutely. 
And Romeo Void was like that too. We didn't want to make it in the music business. We never even considered that. We weren't styling ourselves on rock stars. You know, we were, we had something to say. We wanted to say it. We wanted to, we had a community for sure in San Francisco and, um, you know, places to play, after hours clubs, um, Mabuhe Gardens. And what's interesting about the releases, you can hear the beginnings of who Romeo Void would be, even though we're not all the way there yet. Benjamin, at the time of this recording, had only been in the band, you know, maybe four to six weeks. So he was just starting to integrate with the songs we had already written when he wasn't around. And so hearing that now, I'm so grateful that I had these musicians who gave me the stage to experiment with what I could create within a song with lyrics and singing and vocalizing. I didn't even understand the difference between a verse and a bridge and a chorus. Was not musically trained whatsoever. And yet, you know, they'd come up with the chords and we'd figure it out during rehearsal. And we would create in rehearsal. I would have a notebook, you know, with tons of phrases, maybe some poems. And then while they're making the chord changes, I'd start trying to figure out how to put them all together into what were verses and what's the hook line going to be, the chorus. You know, we, we had to kind of figure some of that out. And, and especially on that first record, it's, it isn't always extremely identifiable from a musical point of view or a lyrical point of view. What is the chorus of this song? <laughs> and I hear that now and I'm like applaud it because it was a lot to have the musicians just do that, you know, and be willing to go there. And I consider it very generous of them with their time to, you know, sort of allow me to be in there making it happen. Of course, for them, I was always like the cheerleader. We can do this, you know, anybody can. Um, we would accept gigs, you know, at warehouses after hours, you know, after the clubs closed down, stuff like that. And they'd be like, where are we going? And I'm like, well, it's way out by the wharves and, you know. <laughs> A lot of kids from the Art Institute will be there because, you know, um, there's quite a little scene there. They'd like load up their cars and haul those amplifiers up the stairs. It was a lot for them to participate in that with me. I don't care where you're from. You never want to hear the phrase out by the wharfs. Just, you know, down, down, down by the docks is always, that's a troubling phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hunter's Point was uh, the name of the area where we often, where artists had their studios. So that's where the parties would be, you know, after hours. So When you first crossed paths with these guys, uh, did you feel like a, an outsider? You know, all, all these people who did kind of bring some form of musical training or musicality to the table? Not really, because um, Frank and I started the band together, the bass player. And so it was pretty much over the summer when him, 
and I got together because I was working in the video studio for the performance department of, in the art school. And he was working for the gallery installing this big elaborate Alice Acock show. And so we got together like at lunch and stuff and maybe after we got off work, you know, whatever our hours were. And he had a guitar, bass guitar and a drum machine. And I was like, hey, you know, maybe you can help me do some performance pieces. So some of the first things we did together is I would write lyrics and he would write bass parts for me to do this action on video, but also have this music happening. And then pretty soon it was like, well, let's just get Peter involved. And I was in this band called the Mummers and Poppers that was sort of like, um, I don't know if you ever saw that movie back in the day called The Commitments, but it was all these English people doing sort of Motown and lots of, you know, oldies, um, but like a real dance atmosphere. And the band I was in was called the Mummers and Poppers. And there was a lead singer for that, Billy Bastiani. And so I was one of the backup singers, me and my friend Rachel, who was later in the units. Her and I were singing backup. We, we had lead on a couple songs, but mostly we sang backup. And so, you know, there'd be like seven of us on stage having a great time. And we kind of wanted to transform the punk experience that we'd been into and going to the clubs into something a little more playful and more fun. And let's start dancing again. And let's not just be all detached leaning against the wall, you know. I was asking about the confidence earlier, but it sounds like that's the perfect on-ramp to be to be sort of a backup for somebody else on a stage with, you know, six or seven other people. That's a great way to start on stage. And Rachel and I were kind of a unit. Like we would make clothes so we looked like we were supposed to be together, you know. That was the fun of it. And then when I started my own band, it was just like, you know, I, I had the same kind of attitude. Let's just get up and do it. Make some, let's shake some action, so to speak. I wonder if there's an extent to which not having expectations is kind of a superpower when it comes to playing music. I never could have said it like that, but absolutely, yes. With that in mind, were you were you blindsided? When Never Save Never became what it was? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. When Romeo Void really got more success, it was shocking in a way. Because, you know, we'd been playing, you know, even the first couple of tours were in small clubs with scenes that happened to them. But by the time we did Never Say Never, and we, you know, and then again with Girl in Trouble, we were playing like colleges, you know, so we were playing not scenes, not clubs, but, you know, bigger venues. And I'd look out at the audience and I'd be like, you're the kids that hated me in high school. Why are you at my show? You know? Um, So there was like, uh, there was some definite fear involved in in having to be in that world and some trepidation. And certainly with the, you know, a- administration of the duties of the record label, there was just a, you know, total clash of culture, you know, with the A&R guys and all that. 
promotion people. I sort of think in the same way, you know, as I was saying that having no expectations is a superpower. I think probably early on when you're in a scene, you know, full of, full of like-minded bands to a certain extent, there is a way in which there is power and not looking like everyone in, in that at very least, like it's a way to stand out. But then at, at least back then, this is probably again, still the case now, but at, at least back then there was, there was a ceiling to that as far as the, you know, be, uh, major label record companies don't want to take risks, right? They know what, what has worked for them in the past and, and they want to keep doing that. And when you present something to them is that's different, even if it's, if it's just, Hey, you know, I look different they're not really willing to take a risk on that. Even if they're the ones who courted you. That's what was weird is that we were offered different deals. You know, um, Howie from 415 Records ended up selling us to Columbia because Columbia would take all of his artists and his entire label. But we had already been talking to Electra which we thought would be more of an artist's label, which, you know, it certainly has been in the past, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, etc. And then that decision wasn't really ours to give because we were owned by 415 at that point. And he said later at a conference, I heard him speaking that he felt like he fed Romeo Void into a meat grinder. And he kind of did. He kind of did, yeah. It's a very vivid metaphor. (laughs) What did being fed into a meat grinder look like for you in the band? Well, different feelings. But for instance, I remember, you know, we got lucky to get this great booking agent out of New York. And then you go backstage You know, you're playing with the Bush Tetris, who you love, and you go backstage and the booking agent is passed out on quaaludes in your dressing room. And you're like, this is what we were aspiring to, to be with these guys? You know, I mean, none of us would be ever passed out in the dressing room on quaaludes, you know, but the the people who work for record labels in those days, that was, you know, or booking agents, you know, that's something that would happen. And the other thing was their total disapproval of, you know, my looks. And it's like, well, you signed us, you know, you knew what we look like. So come on now. It hasn't changed. Um, So yeah, it was just, uh, And then, okay, so another instance that happened, too, is that when you're out uh, promoting your record and we were promoting Instincts for a Girl in Trouble and we get to New York after touring all the way across the country, we get to New York and we go up into the, it was called the Black Box at that point, it's Columbia Records, this big black building, Black Rock is what they called it, actually. And you go up there and all over the walls of the highways, I mean the highways, of the hallways, is Patty Smythe. Because I Am the Warrior is coming out. 
And suddenly it's like, okay, no wonder we're not seeing the promotion people backstage anymore because this is what they're banking on now. And we're over for them. You do three LPs. You have two of them are on Columbia and, you know, two in a row. You've scored pretty big hits off of them for things that just sort of end the way they did. I was going to ask whether you were done with them or they were done with you, but I think you kind of answered that question. Yeah. They never say never happened because of Howie and 415. We got the bulk of our sales for that record. Initially, the first 70,000 that were sold caught their attention to want us. And that was on Howie. He had a uh, map of the United States up in his office and he would map all of our tour and the other bands that were on his label map their tours. And there's a note across the top, all bands on tour at all times. And he was on the phone. We were doing interviews every college radio station. So we were entwined with college radio quite a bit, actually. And a lot of our success was due to the activity at college radio stations and their enthusiasm for Romeo Wood. Not commercial radio. We were on very few commercial stations. You know, in L.A., we were on K-Rock. I'm not sure we got played much on KSAN ever. No, we weren't. At any point, not just the beginning. Right, exactly. You know, we were never a KSAN. We weren't Journey. <laughs> or YMT. MTV come, and, uh, yeah, I mean, MTV kind of comes along later in that. But I mean, that, what, what does, is, does that, well, no, I guess, what MTV was, what, 80... Three? Yeah, we were on MTV. We were one of the earliest fans on MTV. That's a boost in that, you know, that that is nationwide. But at the same time, if if it's a problem, if the label has a problem with how you look, that's only going to be exacerbated by having music videos. Yeah, but I'll have to tell you, the fans find you because they like it. It was never the fans that didn't like Romeo Voight. It was the system. Yeah. I mean, our fans were like us, you know, or um, aspired to be, or, you know, yeah. Our fans definitely were excited by who we were and what we were doing. And I've had so many people over the years, you know, I was this little Chicano girl in Texas, and then I saw you on MTV, and I realized I could do, you know, la, 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 there's... I heard that a lot. And from gay people, because, you know, San Francisco is so gay friendly. We had plenty of gay friends, great gay staff on, you know, who worked for our band. Lots of gays in the punk scene. Gay band members and all that. So our audience was never the barrier. It was, it was the gatekeepers of the labels. You know, finally, 40 years later there's such a big push for representation in that way. And there were so many people that you, and I don't know, I don't know if this is just something nobody ever realized or nobody really cared about, but there were so many sort of unaddressed parts of the population, untargeted parts of the population that you were able to speak to because you look different. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Probably the best example, but looking at somebody like Lizzo, for example, obviously it would have been nicer if it still happened while you're you were around, but it it must be nice sort of seeing that play out to a certain extent the way it is. And she's amazing. You know, she's so talented and she's so courageous. Talk about confidence. If I had won one thousandth of, of that, I would probably have a very different life and career. Yeah. How did you get into teaching? Um, well, I started teaching adults first because I learned printmaking and then I got my own press. So I was teaching adults um, etching and lino cut. And then I got invited to teach in some schools. The first one of the first schools I taught in was the Native American Charter School in Oakland. And um, after doing a lot of school things, I started taking more and more of those little, um, at the time they were like part-time contract jobs, like you come once a week for six weeks, that kind of artist in residency. After doing an artist in residence thing for, you know, probably about six years or so. Um, and then I transferred that when I moved down to the desert, I started working, you know, for the Riverside Arts Council doing artist in residence. I did that quite a bit down um, in Southern California. And then after a while, I was like, you know what, maybe I should go back to school and let the kids come to me. Because I had a trunk full of art supplies. I'd be hauling all over, you know, the lower part of the state, you know, going from uh, Victorville and Apple Valley out to Coachella and down into San Bernardino in a period of three days, I'd be teaching in all those locations. So it was practical at that point for me to just go ahead and, and I enjoyed doing it. I think there's something really exciting about, because they're all about change things are changing for them all the time anyway. So seeing them change and embrace the changes that happen to them when they start creating art and having the confidence, you know, there's that word again, to um, express themselves and have that recognized and understand the feeling of art making and art processes it was wonderful and it was different than teaching adults who actually had way more fear about their skills and representation and things like that. Certainly when I was an art teacher, I would try to design assignments based on the processes and the materials so that things would look cool, even if you didn't know how to draw. And so I sort of ended up specializing. I, I named it myself, but I was the art one specialist at the high school where I just um, ended my career working after nine years there. Because I enjoyed, if you're only going to have one art teacher, it should be me. Because I'm going to show you all the things I know how to do, but I'm also just, I'm here for you to experience this. And if you just experience it one year in your high school education, it's going to be good. And you will be able to transfer some of the um visual literacy that I'm going to teach you how to talk about things and notice things, um, you can transfer those skills to lots of other places. And the fact that I really encourage to people to be creators, not consumers. It's very easy to be a consumer. That's what you're always doing. Instead, let's, let's take the reins and create things. And also, creators tend to 
inventors get paid. And if you learn anything and you're really good at it, you can get paid for it. So it's practical in a way too. And especially like in California and actually in America, our artistic um, output is what is desired by so much of the world. You use a phrase when I ended my career, which sounds very definite. Is that, is that chapter of your life over? In public school. I'm thinking of doing some Zoom classes for adults again. And I'm there's an organization here in town that I very well may get involved in down the road. I'm not ready yet. That uh, is an after-school arts program that happens in a storefront here. And I, that's the kind of thing I would love to be involved in or special populations. Um, you know, foster kids or people having drug and alcohol counseling, that sort of thing. Um, more like that kind of situation where it's really art is healing and art is medicine. I'm very interested in those kind of things where um, you use art as a tool to grow and heal and um, communicate and all empower yourself. That's what I'm interested in rather than be a part of the art scene. You know, so I'm still that way. Uh, I mean, I go visit museums. I love museums. They have so many of the people that I've always been interested at them. But I don't consider wanting to break into the art world as an artist in that way at all. Art one, day one, lesson one. What's the first thing that you teach? Ooh, I would have to say um, to be spontaneous and see something out of nothing. So one of the first things I have kids do is those, they're called exquisite corpse drawings, where you fold over the paper and you do one section, I'll do the head, and you tell the kids, have it be outrageous, add texture, add horns, or um, goopy eyes, or, you know, anything you can think of, you know, spiky hair, really think about the textures of things. And it could be a monster. It doesn't have to be a human being. And so then, like, say, you do the head. The next person does from the neck to the waist. Next person does the waist to the knees. Next person does the feet. That's a table activity. You finally get yours back. You open it up. You see what it looks like? Because you've been leaving little marker marks along the fold so people know where to continue the figure. And then it's your job to paint it and give it a background. That's one of the very first projects I would, I always did in my art classes. And it makes it fun. It's community oriented. You sit and talk at your table. You get surprised. All the good things. <laughs> <laughs> 